Welcome to Hebrew Bible Insights, a podcast about making sense of the Hebrew Bible. We engage in the study of the Hebrew Bible in its ancient Near Eastern context and original languages to promote good and reasonable interpretation of Scripture so that the church might live more faithfully in the present. Welcome to Hebrew Bible Insights, a podcast about making sense of the Hebrew Bible. We're here with a special guest today, Dr. Jason Staples. And we're talking about his brand new book uh, here, The Idea of Israel and Second Temple Judaism. And uh, we had a great time reading this work. And this has got a phenom- gotten a phenomenal response from scholars around the world already. And I'm already going to tell you, this is just the first of more things to come. So we're very excited for this research. Uh, so, Jason, before we dive into your content, let's say someone's maybe not familiar with you. Uh, or your content. Can you give us a little bit uh, about you and your background? Um, yeah, I guess. Uh, so uh, I did my uh, BA and my MA at Florida State, uh, where I did a lot of language work and uh, really got a, a strong foundation in uh, early Judaism and classics, kind of combining uh, uh uh, classics work with a lot of early Judaism material and also some Hebrew Bible stuff, uh, and then went from there to uh, to UNC uh, Chapel Hill, where I did my PhD uh, and worked there again in early Judaism and early Christianity. And this research sort of grew out of a lot of that. Uh, the The primary research that that this that this uh, grew out of actually came from. Uh, my under there was an undergrad class when I was at at Florida State back in 2003. Uh, the it was a a class on the uh, Hebrew Bible prophets, and uh, I noticed some things in there pertaining to promises to Israel and Judah and the way that they actually it was distinguishing between the two, and then uh, took note of how those promises had been applied in the New Testament and thought about thought you know that's interesting there seems to be something here and when i started digging through some scholarly stuff because i got interested uh, i noticed that other folks hadn't really gone there so it's like oh i you know i can fill this hole and decided i'd just jump in and and do that and i figured you know a decade or so towards this and i'll get it done and (laughs) and we're we're we're, you know we can i can move on from there and two decades in i'm finally now uh coming out with some of the, the results of that. And, you know, things always take twice as long as you expect, uh, even when you, uh, even when you kind of factor for that. So, uh, so that's, that's sort of the, the, the genesis of this and my background to a, to a large extent and, um, and where a lot of this is coming from. Well, I actually yeah. love the idea of imagining someone who for two decades has been, you know, letting this idea simmer and researching it's, I feel like this book is the opposite of a TikTok video. Now, I can't bash TikTok because we're <laughs> we're on TikTok too, but you know what I mean. Like it, it is just like this is I think the epitome of what scholarship is and why it matters and will always matter is we need people who go deep, and that's not something that just happens by accident. So uh, again, people will feel this throughout our conversation today. I mean, this is not an idea you just you know I was up late la- last night and I was just thinking about something. You know, it's this this takes this takes decades of time to to really think yeah. through. Yeah, yeah, it's excellent research. And but on that note, uh, maybe you could give us the TikTok version of your of your research your book here. <laughs> so, <laughs> if you were to give us a shortened description, maybe of, uh, of of your book of the research that you that you've done here, what what what, what would it be? Um, yeah. So if I was doing this the TikTok version, it'd be like uh, something like 
you may think, and most scholars have thought through uh, modern through the modern period of research that uh, the that Israel, when people talk about Israel in the Bible or in the period after the Bible, uh, that when people say Israel, they mean the Jews. That that is synonymous with the the people that in Greek or uh, would be called the Yehudim, uh, uh, or in he- Hebrew the Yehudim, uh, and that it also would be synonymous with the Hebrews. So you know you get this idea that uh, the Jews can't, Moses led the Jews out of out, out of Egypt, uh, and then you get uh, uh, you know Jesus uh, was ministering to the Israelites in. Uh, the first century, you know, these sorts of things. And they're used sort of interchangeably that way. You may assume that that's the case, but when you look at the actual evidence, when you look at the actual documents from these eras, uh, these words are not used interchangeably. They're not used synonymously. Uh, And so ultimately, you have to figure out what the difference in nuance is and why they're used differently. And the argument of this book is that Jew is a subset of Israelite. Uh, it specifically refers to the subset derived from the kingdom of Judah, which is why you get the the term uh, connecting to that. So uh, basically, Jew means Judahite, and Judah is not the same as is uh, as Israel. It's a subset of the twelve tribes of Israel from the from the biblical perspective, and from a historical perspective, you know, it's a whole separate kingdom that sort of connected to and 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 ha- and worships the same god as the kingdom of Israel but they're separate entities. So uh for its part Israel then is a larger category that then includes those associated with and descended from the northern kingdom of Israel who are not from Judah. So by definition that means that there are non-Jewish Israelites throughout the biblical period and beyond uh and that actually turns out to matter quite a lot. Uh, and then Hebrew, of course, is a third term that is consistently treated as a linguistic term in the, in the Second Temple period. So that's sort of the first thesis of the book. And then the second thesis is, you know, like unto it, or is related to it, which is um, that once we recognize that that distinction between those two things, we can start to understand a lot of prophetic and, and restorationist texts a lot more clearly. When people are talking about uh, when the prophets, you know, promise the restoration of Israel, they're not just promising, you know, some sort of Jewish independence in the future. They're promising something much larger than that, that involves the rest, the reconstitution of the full twelve tribe people, and and so on. And once we once we get into that, we can start to understand a lot more. Excellent. That's really good. You know, as you yeah. talk, you remind me of a story of when uh, I when I was at my previous job before I started teaching modern Hebrew. At university, I was telling one of my coworkers, "Hey, I'm going to go teach modern Hebrew. Uh, that's where my new job is going to be." And he said, "Oh, interesting. Is that uh, is that the language that um, Israelites speak today?" And uh, I, Israelites versus Israelis, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And I tell him, "Well, close, uh, but no cigar. Uh, you know, Israelis. <laughs> you know." And he felt really embarrassed. But one thing I'm really curious about is is I think you know, as you talk, we might think. Oh yeah, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not super educated. I don't know a lot about, you know, whether it's the Middle East today or, you know, I'm not really into the weeds of biblical research. But how did scholarship get to the pl- the point where we they didn't see this distinction? Yeah, um, I'm really curious as you were doing research. Wh- wh- how did scholarship get to the point where it was before you did your own research? 
Yeah. That's almost too much for for one podcast episode. <laughs> but, um, I mean, what you're dealing with is, and this is part of what the first part of the book addresses, is you're dealing with, anytime you're, you're talking about Israel, the term Israel or Israelite, you are dealing with a theological, with a, with a very contested theological territory. Uh, there have there throughout history there has been a a lot of effort from different groups to claim that term and its covenantal uh, characteristics. You know the the implications that it carries that Israel is the people mm-hmm. of the specific God of Israel. That there's been efforts by different groups to claim that title or that that. Um, that category as their own. And you see this as far back as, uh, you know, you go all the way back into the the time of, you know, David and Solomon and so on. And you have the distinction between Judah, you know, Judah and Israel are fighting over, fighting over this stuff back in, you know, when David crosses over the Jordan and then, you know, they're, they're going to bring him back uh, after the death of Avshalom or when Avshalom uh, or Absalom, uh, wins over the hearts of the of the, of of Israel if you read that that whole narrative carefully he wins over the hearts of the people of Israel not so much Judah Judah was sort of dad's power base and only once he wins over the people of Israel does he kind of start to to get that aspect well when David you know David's side wins essentially and he's getting ready to cross over the Israelites and the the people from Judah start to fight with one another over who gets to bring him back first. Well, it goes back pretty far then. And then you get into the into the Second Temple period and you've got the people who still remain in Samaria and you've got the people in you know who return from uh from the exile in Babylon to Jerusalem and all of this, and there's still squabbles between those groups, and each of them claims that Israelite heritage. And then Beyond that, you get to early Christians who say, well, you know, as far as early as Justin, Justin Martyr saying, well, we are the true heritage of Israel. And then you get the rabbinic movement and other Jews who do not uh, hold to that notion that say, no, um, we actually have that. And then you have the continued uh, existence of Samaritans who are looking at both of them going, uh, guys, uh, we here at Gerizim are actually doing the, you know, we're, we're really continuing. The, so you've got these different groups that are all claiming Israelite heritage, but it eventually, you know, the bigger groups, you get, you know, Judaism and Christianity sort of compete in this regard, uh, each laying claim to the heritage of Israel in different ways. And over time, uh, you get, you know, Christians sort of get get more even though there's that claim of well we are the you know veris israel we are the true israel that gets gets put in there you get more the identification as christian becomes kind of the label for that group and then jews tend to hold on to israel as the primary label that defines sort of their covenantal status and then that just sort of works its way through history and then by the time you get to the 20th century uh, you get scholars that are trying to explain when they look at these ancient documents, well, why are these terms not used interchangeably? And you get, uh, and this is you know in chapter one of the book, uh, modern 20th century scholarship basically has taken its explanation from an, uh, the theological dictionary of the, of the Old Testament or the Theologische Wörterbuch, the uh, 
uh, the German version of that that was done in the 1930s that explains how these terms relate. And you have an avowed Nazi scholar who explains mm-hmm. that, well, you know, they, they basically mean the same thing, but, you know, Jew was kind of a derogatory outsider, kind of insulting term that they used as a, you know, accommodation to outsider use, whereas Israelite was the, you know, beloved insider name that they preferred when, when dealing with each other. I mean, of course, that's the way it is. But none of the evidence from antiquity actually says that. It just so happens no. that that's exactly how those terms functioned in, you know, tw- 1930s Nazi Germany. You know, if you wanted to refer to some, if you wanted to insult someone in the in the in the 30s in in Nazi Germany, calling them a Jew would actually be insulting. Mm-hmm. Versus, you know, if you wanted to show someone respect, you use the term that identifies them with the covenantal people. You know, the Israelitische Gemeinde, so the the Israelite community. Uh, and so this then just kind of became the assumption. Uh, we we tend in scholarship to to rely on those who came before us. And if we don't go back to the, to the, to the text themselves and really uh, make sure that those who came before us read them carefully, then uh, it gets really easy to just carry forward some of those mistakes. And, um, uh, and I think that's kind of where, where things have, where things stood before when, when I started my research, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. I really, I really saw that in your book and I really enjoyed that. Uh, I mean, it's a really, it's a good test case for hermeneutics, right? And showing how philosophical context, even in the modern period matters that, that we can actually read back into texts, a uh, meaning that may not actually be there. And, and what you've done here is really good is it it really unpacks the ancient texts within their ancient context to show us what what it actually means. And so I, I found that to be a, an excellent, excellent part of your book. So thinking if we if we jump back, let's just jump back into sort of a pre-exilic moment in Israel, which is a lot of time, right? I mean, there's a, there's a lot of time in the pre-exilic uh, era. So when we define Israel, and you sort of began to do that uh, in your, in your uh, response there, if we define Israel in a pre-exilic state, how do we do it? Um, what what sort of meanings are there uh, that matter, at least the primary meanings? Um. Well, and that gets complicated because, I mean, we could be talking about biblical Israel or we could be talking about whatever we can reconstruct of, you know, historical Israel, yeah. you know, whatever might lie behind the biblical text, of which I'm a little bit skeptical of how much we can actually <laughs> get to uh, in that respect. But uh, biblically speaking, you know, in, in, in the Bible – uh, you have obviously the the patriarch gets the, gets that that label or gets that name first. Uh, he wrestles with God and then uh, or with a man slash God slash angel whatever you know at at Peniel, uh, and he you know refuses to let him go until he gets blessed. And the guy says, "All right, look." You know, you've wrestled with with God and with humans and have overcome, and so you are you are no longer going to be called Yaakov or you know supplanter. You are going to be called Israel, which whatever that means, it's a little bit tricky in terms of etymologically what that what that actually means. But it's identified with overcoming and its connection with you know with with the deity. So he gets that title, and then of course he has the he has his twelve sons and so on. And so from that point forward in the narrative, you know that's established in Genesis, you have the people of Israel, the children of Israel, the sons of Israel, are the descendants of Jacob. Of course, it gets more complicated than that because the moment that the that those descendants come out of Egypt, 
Israel is a mixed multitude. It's people that are, you know, actual descendants and like, you know, genetically, lineally from Jacob, along with, you know, a variety of other people who came out with them in, you know, from Egypt. And they're all brought into this covenantal relationship with God, which is when Israel becomes a people, as it were, in the Exodus narrative. And then that moves forward and all of a sudden you get to Judges and you've got sort of a loose connection of various tribes that the one thing they do seem to have in common is that they worship the the god of israel though they all seem to also be worshiping other gods at different points and you know that becomes a point of <laughs> of problem within the narrative and that develops into then sort of the monarchical period where you have very clearly by that point you have you know the southern judah group and then the northern Israel group, and as far you know, if you read the biblical narratives carefully, what happens is essentially Judah under David essentially takes control of the north, and they become unified. But really, Israel is getting taxed in ways that Judah is not, and you know it looks like a pretty you know tenuous connection. But Judah becomes a part of Israel in the in that sense, they become unified with them, and you get this again tribal thing. Then of course Israel splits off. They're not happy with being overtaxed under David and especially Solomon. So they go and they do their own thing before long. They get exiled or that, you know, you get the eighth century is just basically a massive disaster for the whole region. Uh, large, that kingdom gets destroyed. Large portions of them get exiled. Other people move in. Judah survives and Judah tries to, as far as we can tell, reestablish a sort of greater Israel again under Hezekiah and, and Josiah and so on. And it doesn't really work. And then they get exiled by the Babylonians. And then there are all these prophetic promises that Israel, this greater Israel idea is going to be brought back by the God of Israel, that, that he's going to restore them and that they're actually going to be those through whom God governs the world and, and brings peace and justice and so on. So this is sort of the biblical picture that you get of pre-exilic Israel that moves into the exilic period uh, and beyond. And, you know, all of that, all of that ends up being, you know, carried forward in sort of the stuff that I'm working in, in, in this book. Uh, now, if we want to get into, you know, pre-exilic actual history, you know, there's other things there, you know, Andrew Tobolowsky has some uh, very interesting stuff uh, that was just put out uh within the last couple of years as well, where he's arguing that, you know, the whole notion of Israel as this 12 tribe thing is, is actually an exilic creation based on a pre-exilic people that we don't really have any way of reconstructing much about. And, you know, tries to get into some of the, the backstory on that. And again, there's only so much we can know historically, but as far as the, the biblical story, that's, that's where, where things sort of stand. Yeah, yeah, it's very good. I think on the biblical level, especially because I mean, it shows even in in Exodus how you do have, I mean, you have Exodus four twenty two, Israel is my firstborn son, which gives sort of a special meaning to the term even there, going back to the patriarchs, of course, uh, following the promise through Abraham. But then, as you said, coming to Exodus nineteen and twenty, we give the covenantal relationship that happens, and we have a nation of Israel then at that point. So, so very different, differing terms, even uh, even there in the book of Exodus, but of course moving forward from there. So, it's very good to to sort of parse that parse that out on a on a biblical level. Something uh, I'm curious about, I think our listeners will be too, is you already mentioned how once we get 
past the exile, things become a little complicated and they've been very misunderstood because we have, you know, scholarship. There's a, there's a scholar who had an idea and everyone just kind of assumed it and it became the axiom in the field. You're going back to the ancient sources. Can you kind of walk, kind of walk us through what are the people groups and what are some of the ancient texts? Now you, you, you've mentioned a lot of them. I know you can't just list them all here, but how does one go about saying, Hey, I want to look at the original primary sources of that, we'll just loosely say second temple Jewish period to figure out how are the people of this time period referring to these people groups? What does that process look like? Yeah. And, and again, that's, it, it is complicated and there's a lot. Um, so, I mean, in terms of the various groups, I mean, the most important groups are, you know, obviously different groups of, of Jews. Uh, you've got Jews in the land, you've got Jews in the diaspora, you've got, uh, you know, a variety of Jews about whom we have, you know, decent amount of data and then you also have Samaritans and and that's the part that's the one that you know I sort of dinged the field a little bit for and saying like look I mean this there's a lot of Samaritan stuff that we've got and there's at least a lot of references to the Samaritans even if we don't always have uh, primary sources from the Samaritans which we do have some and we've got you know even more archaeological evidence uh, and the Samaritans, in all of these things, not in, in in all of these cases, in in no case do they actually identify as Jews, and yet they've been treated as a subset of Judaism. Uh, and it's one of those like, well, if we're going to give them, if we're going to treat them as they actually claim themselves to be, then we can't actually identify them as such. Uh, they claim to be Israelites, but not Jews. And then, of course, you got you know John uh, chapter four, where you know Jews do not have dealings, or Jews do not have uh, uh, common you know, do not keep in common with, with, with Samaritans. Well, that, that's a big statement. That means that Samaritans are not understood as Jews. And yet Samaritans identify as Israelites. So now we've got two categories, two groups that we really need to pay attention to. And then, of course, you've got Christians later that, that uh, claim the, the heritage of Israel as well. So that's a third group in this, in this period. Uh, and then, of course, you've got other Israelites and Jews, you know, in the diaspora. There's a very limited uh, uh, evidence for, say, Israel, northern Israelites in the diaspora once you get into the Second Temple period, but there's not none. There is a little bit uh, that we see. I mean, even in the, uh, you know, there's some Samar or there's some Assyrian records, for example, that have uh, chariot commanders and that sort of thing with the with Yah Theophorix, which suggests that these are people that are that are of Israelite heritage. I mean, that's where you would get that most likely. So. Uh, so there's a little bit there. So those are your groups. And then if you're trying to understand how all this works, I think you, you basically have to get to working with first and foremost, I, I, I'm a, I'm more of a text guy. So I start with texts, uh, but I think you have to keep in mind also whatever archeological data and evidence you have in, in that. And you, you constantly going back and forth and looking at, okay, how does this relate to that? But for me, you've got these various corpora of texts within the second temple period. And you want to look at how each one is using these terms and you have to consider each text on its own terms. And then once you've done that, you start to look at, okay, are there commonalities? Are there, are, is there, you know, any set of common threads or is there one common thread that works through these various, uh, these various resources, these various texts. And so for me, uh, places like uh, Flavius Josephus, Philo of Alexandria, you've got the whole Dead Sea Scrolls corpus, which is you know voluminous. You've got uh, the various 
late, you know, they're often labeled apocrypha or pseudepigrapha, you know, these different texts. And, you know, there are hundreds of these, of these texts and you go through and you work through exactly how each of those defines itself, how each of those is understanding these concepts and you do it one at a time. You do it in each of these texts. And then only once you've considered it in those texts, do you start to really uh, try to make a more big picture, try to put the big picture together to see those commonalities. And that, that's basically what I did in this project. You know, this is one of my favorite parts of your research. The graphs mm -hmm. in this book alone is worth the price yeah. of admission, seeing how you lay out these <laughs> numbers. And, you know, the humanities, stereotypically, it's often put in contrast to the sciences, and it's like, okay, if you're in the humanities, it's just all subjective. It's just, it's all interpretation. And while I understand, you know, the sciences and humanities are definitely different, your research is a great example of getting as close as we can to data-driven research where it's not just reading between the lines, you're creating actual data by the, which term is used to describe a certain people group in specific books and when those books are trying to do certain things. And um, I think there's a lot that listeners would learn from reading all these different sections of your book. And for example, one of my favorite parts was actually reading about Tobit. I was surprised. I would not have guessed Tobit <laughs> would be such a great um, resource for this conversation and so fun. And, and you walk through all these different books, uh, you know, did you have a favorite source by chance that as you were going through your research that you were just thought was especially fun or surprising that you included? It might've in been Tobit actually. I, I, I think no, that no. probably was it because Tobit is one of those, it's, it, you, you look at it and it's such a smoking gun when you realize like, yep. oh wow, you know, all of this research about Tobit talks about how you know, you have the these this Jewish family that's trying to maintain its identity in exile, and then you realize, like, wait, they're never called Jews. <laughs> it, it never actually yeah. calls him Jew. Like throughout the book, it only refers to him and his family as Naphtalites and Israelites, and it refers to him Amazing. as a faithful Israelite. And you know, the difference between him and the other Naphtalites is that you know. He refuses to, you know, worship the calves at Dan or, you know, worship at uh, Dan or, or Bethel. And he actually makes the longer trek down to Jerusalem because he's pious and all of this. So, you know, he's allied yeah. with the Jerusalem side of things, but he's always and everywhere a Naphtalite and always an Israelite. And, you know, uh, there, there's a, I, I love uh, A.J. Levine, uh, Amy Jill Levine, who does you know, tremendous, just great work. And some of her work on, on Tobit is just so delightful. And she, uh, she, she's one of my favorite writers in the field. And she has this turn where uh, this turn of phrase where, you know, it's, it works well. She says that, you know, Tobit is, uh, one, one of the main subplots of Tobit is that, you know, they've, they've got to, he's got to find, uh, a, a nice Jewish girl to settle down with, you know, and this is, Obviously, a play on what you'd get in, you know, modern English. You know, you gotta just find yourself a nice Jewish girl. Well, my observation is that if he had married a Jewish girl, it actually would have been a, as much a tragedy as anything else, because what they're what what this is about is about the maintenance of tribal identity, of maintaining Naphtalite identity, and he needs to marry another Naphtalite in order for this to be what in order for God to preserve that tribe in exile. So it's not just about settling down with a nice Jewish girl. Well, if he marries a girl from Judah, that's, that's not what the book is about. That that's violating what the book is, is talking about. This is about God's preservation of Naphtali, the actual 
you know, specific tribe that's not Jewish and yet still Israelite. And that, that to me was just such a fun book to work through in that. And once I realized, you know, I'm looking through and I'm, you know, running numbers and, you know, using different, uh, you know, I used accordance for, as my primary, uh, for looking at a lot of these things. Uh, yeah. and you know, I'm plugging in like, okay, well, you know, how many times does Jew or Jewish or, you know, uh, uh, you know, the various cognates of uh, Udaios, how many times does that actually show up in Tobit? Oh, wow. None? Wow. <laughs> oh, wait. Okay. So you got Amazing. this, this other, you know, you got the, I think Sinaiticus <laughs> has one mention of Yehudim uh, Yehuda, uh, or in there where it's, um, uh, and the Jews in Nineveh rejoiced or whatever. Uh, and it's not even about Tobit and his family, it's a, a separate group. And you go, like, oh, wow. Wow. Like, oh. And then you start to read it a little bit differently. Uh, so that one was a, a really fun one. There were, there were several, though, that were uh, that were up there for me. But that, that might have been number one. Yeah, I, I, I love that that was your favorite, too. That, that was mine. <laughs> and I have to say, again, anyone reading the book, like that, that those few pages on Tobit is just worth reading as, a, as an interesting commentary on Tobit in general. Because, yeah, yeah. again, this, this is just another example of the field. It's so common when people do, let's say, a course on the Apocrypha Deuterocanonical books, it's so easy to just use that typical Jew, Jewish language really quickly to briefly summarize the book when you realize, oh, that's not what this is. And that, that's what I had fallen under too. I just kind of assumed, okay, yeah. And then we realized, wait, it's not. Um, a really quick one more I've follow-up question. i had to break on... so many habits for myself sure. in, in learning, in re, <laughs> like unlearning so much of this in the process of this over the last 20 years. Yeah, I totally, totally get that. So one more quick follow-up question on Tobit, since we're here, that I was really curious about too, is this became a whole new interesting category of literature for me when you, when you comment on the other dynamic that makes Tobit interesting is the idea of Jewish people writing stories about non-Jewish Israelites in the Second Temple period. So can you maybe just touch on that a little bit? <laughs> yeah. That yeah, was just a bomb that you dropped on me there. And mm -hmm. I was just like, what? This is like... Good. Yeah, I mean that's the thing is that you know Tobit is almost certainly written by Jews, not by uh, northern Israelites. But uh, you know, you if you read the Hebrew Bible, large chunks of the Hebrew Bible are not actually talking about Judah or Jews; they're talking about Israel in the north. I mean, you read through, go through the the uh, the bulk of of First and Second Kings, and more than half of it is dealing with the Northern Kingdom. I mean, the entire yeah. Elijah and Elisha cycle is in the North. Yep. I mean, that's, yep. you know, what, 1 Kings 17 through 2 Kings 12? That's a big chunk. It's a lot. <laughs> right? And that's all in the North. I mean, the only time you see the South involved is like, oh, and yeah, Jehoshaphat was there, and, you know, he said, hey, is there, you know, not a prophet of Adonai that's here? You know? So, <laughs> you know, this is... This, you know, that's fascinating because this is literature that is preserved by the remnant of the southern kingdom of Judah. There's no question about that. We know this. Yeah. And yet, so much of it is focused on northern patriarchs, northern tribes, the events in the north. Now, in many cases, it's to sort of demonstrate that, well, you know, those northerners, you know, they didn't do this right, and that's why. But... You know, this is, it's all set up in a way that, that Judah is not complete without what's going on, without its northern complement. 
And you get this even in, in, in the end of Genesis. I mean, uh, that was another actually sort of big thing for me to realize, like, wait, you've got the last 13 chapters of Genesis, you know, 37 through 50, or I guess that's 14. Um, you got, you know, those that last whole chunk of Genesis is about the northern patriarch Joseph. Mm. Yeah. With the little exception of that chapter 38, which is, you know, that ribald story that doesn't really mm-hmm. make Judah look the best. Right. <laughs> and it's like, wait a second, Genesis, this is a book that is, it's preserved in, in the Jewish Bible, as it were. But the patriarch that it's talking about here is not the patriarch of, of Judah. And the one who gets the double portion, who becomes the inheritor in line with, you know, the primary inheritor is not actually Judah. Judah gets to, gets to be the, uh, the, uh, the ancestor of the leader, you know, until uh, Shiloh comes to that whole passage that in chapter 49, that's really a mess in, in Hebrew. Um, exactly what that means in the manuscript history is, is tricky. But what what's happening there? Well, yeah, he gets, you know, there's going to be a ruler that's going to, that, the scepter will be with, with, with Judah, but the inheritance, the double portion is Joseph, who gets Ephraim and Manasseh. And this sets the stage that, you know, Joseph is really sort of the center of Israelite inheritance. And that's not what you'd expect with a text that's transmitted by and, you know, preserved by Jews from the South in this whole period. And you get this throughout. And then you get to something like Tobit, written by Jews about Israelites in exile. And you say, like, well, what's going on here? And then you realize that when you read Jeremiah and Isaiah and these, these prophetic figures that are so influential within the canon and, and beyond, they're promising that when Israel is scattered and, you know, in, in advance of Judah being exiled, they're saying this is a temporary punishment to God's people. And this is going to be reversed, and God is going to demonstrate himself faithful by redeeming and restoring all of this group, including the North. Yeah. Well, here's yeah. the thing. If you hold to that, if you continue to, to think that those prophets were, were speaking the truth, and that, that your God, who is the God of Israel, throughout all of these sources, he's the God of Israel, not the God of Judah. Which is interesting. You, you you know you see this often in in modern scholarship. You hear Jewish God, the God you know, et cetera, et cetera. You don't get that terminology in the, in any of this text. And I'm not the first person to point that out. That was pointed out, uh, you know, in the 50s uh, by uh, actually an Israeli scholar. Um, but you know, it's consistently the God of Israel. Well, if that's the, what I believe, and if I believe this God is going to be faithful, then I have to continue to believe that Israel like in the larger sense is going to come back. Otherwise these prophets got it wrong. And if they got it wrong, then is my God really who I think he is? So this is where I think something like Tobit is exactly the sort of thing that, that Southerners are going like, where are they? Like, what, what about, what about Naftali? What about these? And then you have somebody go, okay, well, let me tell you God is, has actually preserved them out there. They're, they're still as a faithful remnant. We may not see them. They're out there way East or whatever, but God has preserved them for the, for these last days. And at some point God is going to redeem and restore his whole people of whom he's maintained a remnant throughout. And that part ends up being really important to Judaism 
because without it, the faithfulness of God is actually called into question. The faithfulness of the God that Jews worship is called into question if that God is not also preserving that northern portion of whom the, the prophets made a lot of major promises. Yeah. That's so good. And I think I think you're making such a nice uh, maybe argument even for the actual history of ancient Israel, because it does show how <laughs> the southern tribes are actually uh, putting forth the whole history of Israel, the northern tribes as well, saying that, you know, salvation will come forth. You might not expect that if, if history wasn't true in that sense. But I want to divert away from that. I want to ask you a question regarding your erudition uh, out of the Gospel of John. You brought up John chapter 4 with the, uh, with the Samaritan. So there's this, uh, reading your book, I, I couldn't help but, but to think of this chapter often, and especially this verse, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Because ultimately Jesus is going to suggest that there's a time coming when we won't worship in Jerusalem or in Samaria, right? Uh, and uh, on either of these two mounts, mountains. And so you have verse 22, though, where he says, You worship what you do not know, saying this to a Samaritan. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So you see here that there is an interesting distinction being made even within Israel regarding this particular mm-hmm. tribe. I'd love to hear your comment on that. Yeah, I, I think this gets back to, if you read First and Second Kings, for example, you find that, well, you know, yeah, you know, David and Solomon had their issues. And, you know, I mean, actually, if you get into it, you know, the, not just David and Solomon. You give throughout the the fact that the uh, that the Judahite kings are actually offering their their children in child sacrifice on you know on yeah. the regular. That that actually seems to have been a, a widespread practice by the by the Judahite monarchs. That's in. I mean, it's not exactly hiding it, but it's not emphasizing it in First and Second Kings. <laughs> but it's there. So there, you know, there's there's some aspect of that. But throughout, you get this whole notion of like. Yeah, the North, they, they've been in rebellion. You know, you get when, when they, when, 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 uh, Rehoboam and, and the Rehoboam Jeroboam split happens, you have the, you know, that editorial aside. And so the, you know, the 10 tribes have been in rebellion against the house of Israel or against the house of David to this day. And so what you have is in the, I, I, a good way to put this is in the Jewish Israelite uh, reading of this, in, in, in that theological understanding, David and David's house gets an everlasting promise. David is promised to be the one through whom the rule that God has promised is going to come. Uh, and David is from Judah. And I think Jesus is in John saying, look, the the promise the promise of redemption the promise of salvation here that's got to come through the Jews because that's the promise that go, that comes through David you know he's identified and, and I think of course this has extra weight coming out of Jesus mouth in the gospel of John mm-hmm. saying the one who through whom that salvation is is supposed to come is standing in front of you or sitting sitting down with you uh salvation comes from the Jews and I'm it is what what's happening in the Gospel of John, because Jesus is the heir of David to whom those promises were made, and through whom the restoration of Israel and the and the salvation of of Israel and beyond is actually promised. Yeah. Uh, but I think that this ties into this larger uh, notion of what I you know following E.P. Sanders call restoration eschatology, that I think is really central to early Judaism, and yeah. I think it's under 
it's it's underplayed and how important it is in sec- in the second temple period partly because once you get to to rabbinic judaism certain strands of rabbinic judaism especially once you get into the modern period have sort of de-emphasized the the restorationist aspect of this uh so that sort of has become less emphasized within some of the early jewish sources but if you read a lot of this early jewish material the the expectations of of a final redemption and a, a final uh uh exaltation of god's uh, of the people of israel is is if not central it's always there pretty much always yeah. there uh and so what i see is that this is sort of that other part or that that completion of of when you're looking through the narrative that's established in, you know, starting in Genesis and working its way through the, the primary history and you get some revision of it in first and second Chronicles, but throughout the prophets and all of this, you have this notion of God having the God of Israel being the God of the world, uh, the, the high God and having a specific plan through which the whole world will be redeemed. And he chooses one family, Israel, and then chooses one tribe and one family within that within Israel to, through whom that is going to you know manifest its way out to Israel and then through Israel to the world and what i see in john when jesus makes this statement is he saying that it is judah that is the the center the people through whom that salvific yeah. Uh, thing that God is going to do th- for all humanity. It's Judah that God has chosen and specifically, you know, he doesn't mention David there, but it's David and David's family through whom that's going to be done. And then that's going to spill over to the rest of Israel and beyond. I think that is the theology that's sort of underlying what's going on there in, in the gospel of John. That's oh, fantastic. I think it's such a good response. And you see here too, I think in John four, obviously it is about where worship happens. Mount Gerizim or in Mount Zion in Jerusalem at the Jerusalem temple. And of course, that was the sin of Jeroboam. The ultimate sin was that he did not worship at the Jerusalem temple uh, and that the northern tribes worshiped at different sites. Everything would have been fine had Jeroboam still been faithful in going to the Jerusalem temple, according to how Kings wants to work that out. So interesting here that Jesus is going to actually do away with all of that, say that we're not going to worship on either mountain anymore, but we're going to worship God in spirit and in truth. So I think it's a very interesting point on a, on a historical geographical uh, level when it comes to what was the sin of the northern tribes ultimately and what wasn't. So, yeah, it sort of excellent. cuts the Gordian knot to some degree in, in terms cer- of the rivalry does. between those groups where it's like, mm-hmm. you know, Jerusalem or Gerizim, and he goes, well, it's going to come from the group in Jerusalem, <laughs> but ultimately it's it's going to be, you know, both and neither. Uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, that, that sort of is the way that, that that works. I do think, I do wonder whether in that notion of, um, of worshiping in spirit and truth rather than on one or the other mountain connects mm-hmm. to the uh, vision of the temple that you get in, in Ezekiel. Mm. Oh, because one of the things yeah. about the vision about the temple in Ezekiel is that that's not actually a place where, you know, there's a whole lot going on in that temple. God is yeah. there and the presence is there, but what actually happens is the water just runs out from it. And then the water gets deeper and deeper, the further away you get. Yeah. That's interesting. That's, that's emanating yeah. from the from the temple, uh, and you know you don't see, uh, you know, a, a, a whole lot of sin offering and, and that sort of thing going on in that temple, or you know, a lot of mm. the things that are happening. The expectation is that people really aren't going to be going to that temple so much, right? 
uh, and you know it's going to be holy and sort of kept kept in a different way, and the water's going to yeah. run out. I do wonder to what degree, especially given the uh, you know the statement that Jesus makes that uh, later in in the Gospel of John uh, to the one uh, to the one who you know has my word. Uh, living waters will pour out from him, right? Mm, uh, yeah. As as it is written, and this has always been a, a difficult thing of like, where is that written? <laughs> like, there's not actually a, a specific passage where it says, you know, that people will have living water come out from them, but there is living water coming out from the temple in yeah, Ezekiel that's good in yeah. that particular way, and I wonder whether or not this is actually connected hmm. with that in a specific way within the Gospel of John. Sounds like a good paper right there. So <laughs> that's really interesting. You know, I'm I'm so glad that we're we're getting to this point. You know, this this eschatological vision because this is the part that everyone needs to hear. Because on, on one hand, your book is making sure we actually get our categories right, which ultimately this will influence so much research in a lot of fields. You know, because this terminology and categorization of people, which then impacts whose ideologies are whose, is hugely influential. But the thing that you really focus in on toward the end is this, this really impacts what is the eschatological vision of the Jewish slash Israelite, whatever people groups. You've already kind of touched on that. So I guess I have a twofold question. One is, is there anything even more so than you've already said you want to dig into on that part of the vision? If you've already felt like you've touched on that enough, the other thing I want to ask you about is it's so hard to not then think about the great commission that Jesus gives with the intentionality of saying, go to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. I know growing up for me, that verse just might as well have meant go to want, 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 and want, 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 and then to the ends of the earth, right? So can you just maybe help us, help us here? Yeah, and that that is, I, I certainly would have taken it the same way before too. I mean, it's want, 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 want you know, because you hear Judea and Samaria and you're, you know, we are, especially in the United States, we tend to be a people without a, without a place. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, how many of us actually, especially in, in, in the sort of intellectual class, most of us don't actually end up living where we, where we were born or where we, mm -hmm. you know, where, where, where our people were or whatever. I don't have a hometown. I mean, I, I've lived all over the place. So for me, the, the local aspect of a lot of things in, uh, in this, tr in the tradition and within, you know, within the scripture, that sort of thing, something I have to kind of change the way I think in order to think that way. And this is one of those. I mean, Judea and Samaria are significant here because, yeah, you have, this is Judah, and Samaria is, of course, where the Joseph tribes are. But, it, see, the Samaritans claim to be from the Joseph tribes, but what about the rest of the northern kingdom? Right. I mean, northern kingdom is not just Joseph and, and Manasseh. It's not just Ephraim and Manasseh, right? So... Uh, you've got to you've got to get to the to the rest, and the ends of the earth. Of course, that language is borrowed from Deuteronomy, where Deuteronomy, and and also from uh, from uh, Leviticus, where Leviticus says, "Though I scatter you to the ends of the earth." Right. Uh, mm. This is in uh, this is at the end of uh, what uh, I think it's uh, Leviticus uh, twenty six, if I remember right, um, but. You know, uh, if you do not listen to me, I will multiply your, you know, your punishment sevenfold and so on. And then ultimately there will be this redemption, though I scatter you to the ends of the earth, I will yeah. bring you back from there. And then you get in Deuteronomy 30, uh, you know, I will regather you from the from the various places where I scattered you from the ends of the earth. You know, you get this language. So this is language that is absolutely pulling from this 
larger restoration eschatology of the 12 tribes connected to this notion of, of exile for uh, disobedience to the covenant and the faithfulness of God to his people that, again, where does salvation begin? To the Jew first, as Paul says, or Judea first, as Jesus says, and then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Well, you've got to go and get the rest of Israel from the ends of the earth. And Jesus, in a couple other places, you know, he'll send his, his angels, uh, his messengers, uh, to the four corners of the earth to gather, gather his people. Uh, this is all part of that tradition, and it's all coming out of this prophetic expectation that there is going to be uh, a reversal of the of the of, of the curse of the Torah that Israel fell under for uh, for disobedience. That Israel came, uh, Israel disobeyed, and you know, in Deuteronomy, you have this. Uh, Moses says, "Yeah, <laughs> you know, see, I set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse, but I know you're going to choose death. So, let me sing my song here." And he, you know, the song of Moses comes out, and he gives this song about how you know you're all going to do this, and then God's going to redeem and restore you. This is what that's about. And um, mm. and there's no way of getting around that. That's what Jesus is talking about. That I, I argue, and so the the next book that that I have coming out, it'll be coming out in the summer uh, of 2023. Uh, that book is a, is basically arguing that Paul, his entire gospel, goes off of this point. Like that's what he's arguing, and that's mm. why when Paul goes to the nations, he sees that as his mission for bringing about the restoration of Israel. Not just he's not just indiscriminately like, well, you know, God's opened the doors for everybody because, you know, God loves everybody. No, no, this is about God's faithfulness to his people, Israel. And what Paul does is he concludes, you know, the bulk of Israel intermarried with and became ethnically indistinct from the nations. So how is God going to bring bring Israel back? Well, he's going to bring in the nations then. And this is how God's promise to bring about redemption to all through Israel is actually going to happen. So yeah, he actually brilliant. sort of wraps all that up together. And I think this is utterly central to the, the earliest Christian gospel proclamation is that this is all about God's faithfulness to Israel and through Israel to uh, bring justice and, uh, and redemption to the whole world. It's good. That's so good. I mean, look, yeah. this already taps into what I mentioned earlier, that your research has huge implications moving forward for a lot of areas, including one that you're already tracking and following with that needs another book, the part two, and seeing how this plays a huge role in the New Testament um, and New Testament, New Testament literature and theology. So um, I don't know if there's a place for pre-ordering this book or not. Um, not sure. <laughs> it will be soon. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it just, it just got put, uh, it just got sent to, uh, like it's going to the, uh, project manager for copy editing now. And once we have a cover, uh, which is, you know, I've got the artwork selected for that, but, uh, but we have to actually get the cover design and all that. Once that cover design is done, it'll probably be in January or February. Then that'll be available for, for pre-order shortly. Fantastic. Thereafter. Well, once you all get the book, the idea of Israel, um, we'll we'll post we'll post on our social media and we'll post on the podcast description. Let's blow up that pre-order and help help him finish this seminal part, you know, two part work. I know you mentioned in your book that this th this work doesn't stand alone, right? It, it's part one to this whole huge project that you're doing, 
And um, I totally see how you couldn't have done both in one book. It's just too much. <laughs> too much. I actually tried. So the interesting thing was that this book was, and the first, these two books were actually, I submitted them initially as a single book. And then uh, I and the editor determined that the, the best way to go forward would be to, uh, to, to split them into two for exactly that reason. Because I, I initially tried to do kind of a, uh, I, I modeled this whole project off of Paul and Palestinian Judaism, which uh, you know E.P. Sanders yeah. changed uh, 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 changed the field in, in, with that book from 1977. And I looked at that and I was like, well, if I'm going to have any sort of comparable impact on some things that I need, I think need changing in in, in a similar way, then I'm going to do the same kind of thing. And it turned out it would be better to do it as a two book deal, a two book uh, series, rather than doing it as one. And I think that ended up being much, much better. The second book is is way better as a result because it would have been a, a very thin treatment of of Paul and sort of tacked onto this. Cool. Well, yeah. as we start to wrap up, Nathan, do you have any um, last question or comments uh, for Jason? I think one last question I have is uh, what's the consensus been from, from the scholarly world with uh, putting this thesis out there? Um, what, what's been the response <laughs> so far? I've not gotten as much pushback as I expected. Um, okay. You know, I, yeah. Given you ha given that you know this is obviously uh, arguing for a paradigm shift, you you kind of you're kind of waiting on like okay, who's going to really say no, 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 no? This is there's there's just no way. And where is the pushback going to come from? So far, the the response has been you know a series of emails and other things of like oh wow, like yeah, this. I think this is right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Now I'm, you know, I'm, now I'm going to have to change this or that sort of thing. Uh, and there was just a a, a, a um, the Enoch seminar uh, did an international panel uh, what early in December. So that uh, that was a couple weeks ago now, from when we're t we're recording this, uh, where there were some eminent reviewers. I was really pleased to that they put some some folks together to do a, a, a formal review of it there. And there haven't Excellent. been any. Uh, journal reviews yet so I, I i can't go off of those but based on the the feedback from those reviewers in the panel uh the general consensus has been that this will essentially change the the the, the general paradigm of how we understand wow. this in the field moving forward uh there are you know there are there 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 there's going to be some pushback in the in in the sense of um uh you know where are there's some differences where where are mm -hmm. the outlier texts that take some different views which inevitably yeah. is going to is going to be brought out I, I mean judaism and israelitism as i uh, or israelism as I, I label it in this book uh it was by no means monolithic so there's going to be more uh discussion of like okay is is this particular reconstruction of what's going on in dead sea scrolls for example is is that reading of that particular section of the scroll precisely right you know th that's where there's going to be some some pushback uh and uh you know there will be uh, uh, one of the reviewers in particular said yeah i'm not i'm not sure i follow you know your reading of this particular scroll here i think this scroll may be an outlier and taking a different view but i think in in general i think your overall thing holds across the board for most mm -hmm. things it's just this this one thing i have a little doubt about and i think that's been kind of the the general general thought is a little concerned that it may be over uh overly monolithic which you know i don't think it's monolithic either uh and so getting some opportunities to to flesh out some of the yeah. differences there and and you know i did not intend this and i don't intend the second book to be the last word on anything i'm i'm, I'm trying yeah, right. really sure. to uh 
lay the foundation for a lot of future work that can carry a lot of things forward. And we can understand, you know, a lot of folks will understand things better than I do, uh, building on, on, you know, that foundation. Yeah. Well, I'm not surprised because you're, no. again, your book is so data driven that it's, it's just, it's hard to disagree. And, um, I also think you're doing a great brave scholarship work because, I part one of my, the hunches I have for why this view has been propagated for so long is that it's it's so in vogue to to just focus on one text or one section or one century and and I understand that because we want to go deep and we want to master everything related to that but if that's all we do we never get the comprehensive twenty thousand foot view and the scary thing is is you will have someone who is a this specific scroll of the Dead Sea Scroll scholar and that's all they do right and you mention that specific scroll or someone is a Tobit <laughs> scholar and you know it, it's a lot easier to say you know what I'm, I'm going to choose the most narrow niche topic only talk about that I master <laughs> that thing but at some point we have to have synthesis scholars people who are saying I'm going to look at the vast amount of literature so thank you for doing that. That's a tough work, yeah. and it makes sense why it takes so long to produce this type of work. I'm very excited. We don't have to wait long for your next book, by the way. Um, I'm yeah, thanks for writing that, that at the same time. That was excellent. W wonderful it's very, idea. It's, <laughs> it's very J.R. Tolkien-esque, you know. J.R. Tolkin yeah. wanted all those books to be put in one mega book, and the publisher's like, no, we can't. It's a massive book, man. we gotta, <laughs> we got to space these out. So, it took me about as long to write these as it did him. So, you know, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> that's great. Well, um, before we go, uh, let us know what's the best way for if people want to connect, if people want to get your book, first and foremost, if ever, people want to connect more with you and your content, uh, what's the best way for people to do that? Well, as far as getting the book, it's available, you know, pretty much wherever books are sold and, uh, you know, grab it from, you know, from Cambridge University Press or from Amazon or from wherever if you, you know, prefer not to you know, add more money to Amazon, whatever I, you know, that, that none of that really impacts me all that much. I just want to, uh, want people to be able to interact with the ideas. Yeah. Uh, as far as getting in touch with me, I'm, I'm not hard to find. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Facebook, uh, various social media. Um, I'm going to be setting up actually, uh, some other things here in the future. Uh, I'm about to launch actually, uh, this is something I was not going, I've wanted to do for years, but I was not going to do until both books were done. Uh, I'll be launching a, 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 a Bible and, you know, Bible adjacent themed uh, podcast called the uh, the Bible Pod. I'll be doing that uh, along with a YouTube channel for that. Uh, that's part of the plan for 2023 is to get that off the ground. Uh, Excellent. To, to try to take Fantastic. some of this. I mean, as yeah. you know, this book is dense. Uh, and, yeah. you know, there's a lot there. I want to actually uh, take a lot of this and then a lot of other stuff and make it more accessible to people, uh, whether that be people in the pulpit or in the pew or whatever, people who are not specialists. Uh, and that's something that, uh, you know, if you're listening to this sometime, you know, after mid 2023, uh, hopefully the Bible, uh, the Bible pod and, and the various, you know, things associated with that, which I'll probably have a TikTok and other things going along with that nice. uh, will also be accessible. So. Looking That's forward great. to that. So, well, we'll put links to all this um, in the description below and in the show notes. And uh, maybe we'll have to have you on mid 2023 uh, mm -hmm. to talk about your new book and uh, your new podcast and YouTube channel. So, yeah, looking forward to thank it. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, yeah, phenomenal thank you. work. Um, and uh, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, guys.